Well, welcome everybody, and thank you for being here with us. Are you able to comment on what it's like not having blocks in there? Uh, no, sir. Tired of, you're already tired of people talking about us like bad ways when they don't even know what's going to happen. It was more important for us to make sure that we had as many people as we needed to be here possible to be able to learn what we're doing. And with that being said, that we would forego the mini camp because we felt like that was more important. And welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast, talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. And we finally hit that point in the off-season, in the wait between minicamp, or the cancelled minicamp, to training camp. We've got a number of weeks now with nothing really on the calendar, apart from obviously the Deshaun situation that continues to bloom over the team. But... We've got quite a lot to talk about. This will be the last sort of flying solo episode. We just keep the content rolling steadily over this off-season. But we're here just to pick up on some points. Quite a lot to pick up on last week. Um, with the position coaches were, were out in front of the media. A number of reports and a retirement and a release to, to discuss. Um, plenty going on inside the building, uh, as always, in NRG. Hopefully, you've got your power back on for those who lost it yesterday in the continual troubles of Aircott and how they can't seem quite to get the the uh, the grid right. But I um, hope you're hope you're surviving. But but uh, the, I suppose the big news this week was mini camp being cancelled, caused a bit of a storm or a variance of reactions right across the spectrum i suppose and i said the the background to it is of course the players unions are trying to or certainly jc Tretter's trying to flex a bit trying to insert his his influence and and his and show that they've got some power certainly the power they showed or the leverage they didn't show when the negotiation of the cba and they're almost trying to trying to renegotiate parts or certainly press back and push back against parts ultimately that the, the players association have agreed to so um i'm surprised to on some degree that teams have been as flexible as they have been now i think there's obviously a vaccination issue to come probably that's going to come ahead with some players and you you've seen certain guys speak out about that um but there but in terms of this obviously all the all the players unions and certain players were discouraged to turn up for OTAs um of course organized team activities it's voluntary so guys didn't have to be there but certainly the Texans have been very quick to talk about this the solid attendance certain numbers and one particular guy wasn't there um certainly a story about that but we'll, we'll keep monitoring that before we talk about that in depth but Perhaps another storyline brewing under the surface, but we'll come back to that one. But the it's effectively a compromise between the team and the players who have said, look, if there is a good attendance at this OTAs, then we won't need to run into mini camp, which is often cut short um, by the team. You know, they didn't necessarily do the two or three days that was scheduled, and that's been you know a constant throughout the Bill O'Brien era, and they've just completely cancelled it this year. And I think there was an uproar, of course, because people say, well. You've got a new coaching staff. You've got almost fifty new players. You've got to build some cohesion. And how are you going to do? Or why are you turning away the chance of more days that are allotted to you when there isn't many days under this current CBA 
why would you turn that opportunity down? But I think the, the backroom was the was a compromise with the players meeting them somewhere in the middle, um, and 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 carrot effectively to 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 guide them through OTEs to encourage attendance. Um, but I think obviously Casario as would have been his decision. I think that was clear when you saw Cully making the point, and he was obviously reading off some notes. I don't know if that's I'm not confident with the media or the fact that he's just. It's not his decision, but I think the fact that Casario's out there so much, I think it shows you it's very much it's his show. Cully is caretaker at best, and I, I maintain that position. But certainly, he delivered the message um, of that, and uh, and it's it's one of those things that you know the the team will wrap up early and give the guys some time back. And um, I think like I think more moreover, it's an admission of there's only so much you can do. In, in in gym wear and you know the guys you've not got the helmets on you've not got the pads on and for most of this roster and for to actually develop situational football to develop you know team players in the trenches to find out what you've got and certain guys um, on both sides of the ball then you can't really develop your team all that much in a, in a true football sense without the pads and it's conditioning and these guys should be coming ready to go uh, in a position um, to contribute and not actually need so much of the conditioning element. And that's really all the OTAs and, and what many camp, exactly the same conditions, no pads, everything's on air. So it's there isn't there's a limit to what you can do to improve the football team. And I think when you take that into consideration, did you need another day of bag drills? Did you need another day of of throwing routes to open receivers? No, I don't think you did. So you you know they've had a good solid four weeks of it. The coaching staff seemed very vibrant and positive about the reactions of the players, and and it was good to see some some points of football. And hopefully, this team is starting to shape up, and certainly they're making the right noises. But we will we'll see when training camp comes around. Talking about the coaching staff was out there some interesting quotes uh, or certainly some interesting points you don't often get to hear from the coaching staff so when you do um, there's often nuggets of information in there or certainly points uh, or you're able to read the tea leaves a bit and understand probably a bit more about the team than some of the more seasoned uh, guys who are presenting to the media and the coordinators you know on a weekly basis and certainly some of the players you don't get a huge amount out of that often but I think that the first one was obviously Tim Kelly talking about the run game. Um, talking about he needs to call more runs. Um, so <laughs> I think in that that's probably where the where this team hinges on a lot this season. Of they couldn't run the ball last year. They couldn't really block. They couldn't get push at the line. And you know that some of the running back play was was a bit blind to to holes and not letting play develop. And there was a mixture of schemes. Put an article on podcasttexans.com. One week they were running power. Next week they're running zone. Uh, and it was it's difficult to. It's difficult to try and build cohesion in a running game when you've not really got you know core principles and stuff you're good at. So if they, if they have found that, and if they've found a way to go and block it up front, then there'll be a way to, for this team to be serviceable in some instances. Uh, but I thought an interesting note of Tim Kelly, but certainly he was asked right at the start, could he comment on Deshaun's situation? Shut that one down very quickly. Uh, but I thought in terms of calling more run plays, um, then hopefully there's some fundamentals being coached right now, uh, particularly the offensive line, and that'll allow them to run the ball this season. And they're going to have to be able to do that far better than they did last season to make up for the lack of passing ability. 
Well, you know, I, I don't, I think the competition is really wide, more widespread than just two players. And I do believe that I, you know, we have eight tackles on our roster right now. And I think seven or eight guys that can play, we have some flexibility with our linemen, um, which I think that, you know, you, a, a lineman that can play more than one position, it can be trained as such. Um, obviously Marcus has been playing right tackle for a long time in this league. So I don't anticipate him moving very much, but other people can move around. And I think the competition isn't just with two players. But James Camden, I think you've got to remember as well, I think when he's come and replaced the much you know, maligned Mike Devlin, Mike Devlin was effectively the run coordinator, uh, run game coordinator for this offense. So a lot of that, the, the lack of cohesion, lack of communication between the guys up front, uh, it was obviously on Mike Devlin's you know door. And also the, the type of plays that were getting called and the type of scheme that was, the game plan that was being pieced together, a lot was Mike Devlin as well. So, when you take that out of it, you hope that Tim Kelly's got a, a clean slate and he wasn't basically just ticking or checking off plays that had been given because it certainly seemed like that versus the, the way in which he called passing plays. They were very, very different, very abstract in how they how they work together. So hopefully um, with James Camden coming in here, uh, then he can, he can really uh, give a more professional and a bit more organisation to that. And it, it was interesting. Obviously the biggest quote or the biggest point... Um, and it was referenced by Camden, it was referenced by the team media multiple times that we should expect a shock in terms of the starting five guys up front. Um, and it looks, by all intents and purposes, um, and almost directly quoted by Camden, that in fact, Cannon will likely be uh, right tackle if healthy. Um, where he is after having a year off, we don't know. Uh, and Titus Howard looks like he will be moving in um, all being said I mean there, there, obviously there is a situation where he beats out Cannon um, and Cannon's not got much left but considering the trade which I thought was a bit short sighted probably the least favourite move that we've got all off season we gave up a reasonable sweet spot in the draft to go and get a guy a position you did not have a need a position that you'd grossly over invested in through, the, through obviously drafting Howard then drafting Sharpen and then obviously the, the old fated Laramie Tunstall trade we won't go there for today but I think when you've invested that much, when you've only got one single player who is of young quality on the salary cap, on the rookie wage scale, where you've only got one guy in that roster, and you're going to, you know, you're going to endanger his development as a football player in year three when he's already played left guard, when he, you've kicked him out to right uh, right tackle, which is his best spot, and I think you should keep him there. Why would you move him inside? And look, I think, you know, all being equal, if he hadn't played a down yet, do I think he would be, is he more suited to be a guard? Has he got huge upside at guard? Yes, but you've not got that many years left with Marcus Cannon, I wouldn't think, who's going to be a free agent the year after next. When you've got development there, when you've got a guy who's not even played a full 16-game season, why that move was made and why... You would then, you know, even contemplate moving him aside. For me, it doesn't make much sense. And I think there's a 
there's an element there of the, there is a limited amount of talent on this roster and to mess about with you know the few grains or, or the few players that could be foundational pieces moving forward, I think messing about with that is a difficult one because then if you move them inside, then you're looking to draft a right tackle. Um, if you know if somebody like Charlie Heck or or Rod Johnson aren't, isn't your long term answer from what we've seen from them as a, a down in down out starter in very commas probably the only group position group on the field that starter actually applies for is the offensive line, but to, to endanger his. His development going into year three, um, I think, is a is perhaps a foolish one, but we'll, we'll see where that pans out. Well, I think um, you know, Coach Cully has mentioned quite often that hey, we're going to be a fundamental based team, uh, and that's that's collective throughout uh, the organization. You know, we want to start by doing things the right way. And um, we'll see. We'll see what that ultimately is. I mean, what do we have to do to win games uh, is yet to be determined. You know, we're we're still in the stages of uh, not evaluating players, but just teaching and, and really, you know, just trying to give them a fundamental base that's going to help them to play winning football during during our upcoming season. Obviously, uh, hearing from Pep Hamilton, somebody that probably everybody was uh, was was looking forward to hearing. It's probably one of the more exciting names with a bit of clout in terms of this coaching staff. And I think overall the coaching staff seemed a bit more convincing in some of their answers and a bit more, you know, don't get me wrong, their trains, you know, they've certainly been given a mandate not to give too much away and every team does that. But I think there was, there was definitely some probably, you felt like a bit more of a credible and more rounded coaching staff. A lot more experience certainly than we've had in the last few years under some of O'Brien's uh, his, uh, various guys that he'd had in, um, predominantly on relational levels rather than pure coaching levels. But but I think Pep Hamilton, um, he didn't really answer the question and didn't seem overly uh, fired up about what type of offence this will be. And again, that, you know, that may be part of him trying not to answer that question, but I thought it was rather a muted response um, in terms of any you know, direct enthusiasm about what this offence is going to be. So I think until we start to see a bit of pre-season, um, we start to get some more reports from training camp uh, when the pads go on, it's still a bit of a watching brief on what on earth this offence will actually turn into being. I think all that will sort itself out. Again, you know, right now we're just really just working on conditioning and uh, just getting the base fundamentals down from a positional standpoint and more so than plays. And I think it'll sort itself out, you know, again, just looking at, you know, what each and every uh, guy can do right now. has been exciting for myself. So as we move forward to training camp, it's going to be even better. You know, once the competitive juices start to flow, I, I think we have a better feel for that. Danny Barrett was talking there and he was discussing the variance of players uh, at running back that we've got in, a whole cast of running backs that are on this roster right now. Who will be the, the first job? And I think look, the, the, the message that came over and continues to come over is competition. One spot you probably can um, you know, find competition because it's a pure production, singular position on the field for the most part. Um, in terms of in, in terms of having a true running back on the field, you may have two at some times, but we just never twenty two personnel sets. We never really used that enough, apart from the Green Bay game where there was some success, but we moved away from that. And 
there was two very different skill sets between the two Davids, but when we've got a mix of skill sets again, who'll be that number one running by? You've got to think it'll be Philip Lindsay in terms of the pedigree, in terms of what he's shown on early downs. He talked about how he makes his money running through the tackles. Uh, but competition uh, was certainly the, the element there. Uh, and they think that I'll work that self out or I'll work itself out comfortably um, at all positions. And that's quite difficult to do. But I think running back's one of them. I think at this stage, Philip Lindsay's got to be the leader. And I would, wouldn't dismiss Mark Ingram not being here because I, I think at this stage, his career over 30, unless he's going to be another Frank Gore and, and buck the trend of 30 plus running, but 30 you know, plus years age running backs that, that start to tail off at some point, then you've got to think perhaps that, or David Johnson, one of the two, because I think Rex Park has been brought here for a reason, and if he's healthy, and if he's ready to go, and if he's in a position to contribute, I think he stays here, so um, I would say Burkhead and, and Philip Lindsay have probably got a bit of an edge, just in terms of being new, um, and, and perhaps being a bit more suited to what they want to do, um, in terms of running the ball. How David Johnson, how Mark Ingram Will uh, will fit into that plan. Then we'll, we'll see. A lot a lot can change between now and then. But some interesting segments from the coaching staff. You know, the, uh, which I've told Ross, this is pretty much his first off season in the NFL. It's not yeah. pretty much it. It is because just because of last year, and so he's learning the fly. He's getting better every day, and I'm expecting big things from Ross. I mean, he's a great kid. He's got a lot of ability. Now we got to tap into it and, and look forward to what he's going to do for us this year. Final one really was Bobby King talking there about the impact of or the or the hopes that he has moving, you know, he's moved over from the linebackers coach Bobby King, one of the few holdovers in the staff. Uh, but he talked about and and perhaps he's almost the most important player on this roster in terms of what the Texans need from a jump from year one to year two and actually be a contributor considering the lack of draft picks he's the highest pick in a, in a three-year window bar Titus Howard is Ross Blacklock and he's a guy that this team needs something from this season he has to show he was worth the slate he has to get off the ground and stay on his feet lower the pad level and be able to hold up far better at the point of contact than he did last year because he looked lost whether that was conditioning, whether that was lack of technique, lack of coaching, it will seem. But certainly Bobby King, one of the more sort of charismatic leaders, I think, in terms of that position. He did a great job with the linebackers, uh, less so last season with injuries. But overall, I think he's, he's definitely shown that he did a good job last year. He talked about how he's always been a defensive lineman. So I think, hopefully, if there's a, one of the coaching staff who can get a, a, a better jump out of the position, it's got to be Ross Blacklow because he does a lot riding on him in terms of roster composition uh, considering the, the few picks we've had high in the draft but he's one that's got to pay off um, if we're going to start to formulate the foundations of some sort of competitive roster and Edgefor's got him first NFL sack for Duke Edgefor but in, perhaps you know it's, it's well documented but we've had a lot of positions and a lot of players not pan out in the last few years, and I think the the 2018 draft, the obviously the first year after trading for Deshaun Watt, so we had to sort of pay off some of some of that borrowing to go and trade up in 2017. Uh, but that draft class now is is looking relatively dwindled uh, in terms of the, the those picks. Only three remain out of the eight, but I think. 
with the Duke Edge for release this week, I think it's a, it's ultimately a, a, a one of regret because I think in terms of pure evaluations from Brian Gain in that draft class, now we're at a, a point to acutely judge it in a, in a pretty holistic way. We've got enough sample size now to make a judgment on it. But if you think of the evaluations, obviously Justin Reed dropped and a lot of issues with his brother, but he's unfulfilled his potential at this stage. Injury's a big part, but he's never really played and looked like the player that you thought he might be apart from year one, obviously hoping he's going to be a bounce back year. And his position coach talked about that this week. It didn't look like he was taking too much on his plate. Obviously other guys moved to safety, new teammates at that position and he was trying to do too much. So hopefully in this more simplified defence under Lovey Smith that everybody keeps referring to, he will have a bounce back year. But I think the thing for Justin Reed is he's not lived up to his potential so far. And then if you think of the mismanagement of Martinez Rankin, quite clearly a guard, played guard at Philadelphia week 15, week 16 um, in 2018, played well. That stood up well against Fletcher Cox, looked like he had flashes to make it. He basically lost a bit of form preseason, gets traded out and swapped with Kansas City for Carlos Hyde, but a guy who had potential as a starting left tackle in the SEC for Mississippi State, and you didn't develop him, you didn't get anything out of that. Same with Kiki QT, fourth round pick out of Texas Tech, Wes Welker's hand-picked guy, probably one of the top or two, two or three guys at slot receiver in that draft, but just ha simply hasn't played because he went to O'Brien's doghouse didn't get the snaps he required, his development was stunted. Jordan Thomas, again, year one, six-round pick out of Mississippi State also, but a guy who had all the physical attributes, a wide receiver convert. Year one, brings in four touchdowns. He had a stretch of games, Denver on the road, at home against the, the Miami, um, and, an, and against, again against Tennessee on a Thursday night, where there was plays where the guy looked unplayable. The opening drive against Cleveland, the opening drive at Denver, like I mentioned. The guy looked like he belonged in this league as a starting tight end. He, Okay, he's blocking let him down at times, but that could have been improved. Uh, but again, much for personal reasons, he got injured in preseason um, in 2019 and he was dismissed. And again, more talent comes into the building, not developed um, and, and, then, and then released relinquished on the side of the road and these guys aren't, you know, okay, not all have picked up on the roster um, but certainly, you know, there, there, there's a lot there's a lot of regret I think about their draft class because it's pure evaluations given to the coaching staff by the front by the front office they didn't manage those guys well enough and unfortunately Duke Edge for another guy whose career is just cut short by injury um, and he flashed in that Detroit game in pre-season um, he played in his rookie year he played a number of snaps Remember him filling in a uh, spot filler at outside linebacker um, in 3-4 over fronts um, against Dallas um, on the primetime game in, in 2018. He looked like he had all this, all the measurables there to go and be a contributor in this league as a, as a role player on defence. Um, and there was a reason why coming out of Wake Forest, he dropped to this position he did. Uh, but unfortunately, Edge of Fort is gone. But I think a big regret in terms of injuries. He was very unlucky. He got injured in, in training for the season before 2018. 2019, um, he gets rolled up on and he's out again, another injury. So failed physical designation for Duke. There was a reason why he went the sixth round, but you know everybody that saw him at training camp in year one, a hugely polished pass rusher, everybody was impressed with the technical ability. It was the availability and the lack of health that unfortunately lets the you know Houston native down. Um, and another loss and perhaps a draft class 
another reason that compounds our lack of depth and roster uh, quality overall. But just a bit of reflection there on that draft class and Duke Ejiofor. There was a report out there in a Minneapolis newspaper regarding the, the Texans' supposed interest in killing Mond at pick 66. Obviously, the Texans selected Davis Mills at pick 67, the one following, um, which is interesting in itself. The more you think about it, if you, if you just take the fundamental points that we know prior to this, in fact, the Texans reported or, or Kellen Mond's uh, agent supposedly gave this news. Now, I don't know how commonplace contacting the agent is on draft night. My understanding is that teams contact the player directly. The scouts build the relationships in their areas with the players. Of course, they will speak to the agent at some point. But my understanding is people directly contact the player on draft night. And you saw that a couple of years ago when the Texans, one of the area scouts, got screenshotted. One of the guys said, just checking your mobile number, is there any other teams interested in you? And it was direct player via the scouts. So the scouts relationship, which Nick Casario talked about in his analytics conference that he was at, which you can check out on YouTube, quite interesting in terms of his his approach. Um, and there's probably you know a lot to unpick there in terms of analytics, which he quite clearly probably didn't trust this year in terms of the process. But the, and predominantly relied on on coaching uh, inferences and, and relationships um, to to make these picks. So and he, he described the Texans actually as a startup um, in terms of their processes versus uh, Kevin Demoff in LA and about how you know they're kind of established and how they they, they provide all the information and make their, their pick on draft night. So quite interesting. Um, if you've not checked that, I suggest you do. But I think when you when you when you think about that that pick, so I, I think for for the first instance, the fact that it came from an agent, I don't think the Texans or at any team as a as a normal way of working contact the agent. So first and foremost, it makes me think that it's it's not necessarily true. And the second point, which I think perhaps makes you, makes me think it's worth dismissing, is the fact that all the reports or the certainly Davis Mills family talked about celebrating prior to these other guys getting picked because they were told in advance that they were going to get selected. I mean, you look at Pep Hamilton, you know, we've been over all that, but the links to the coaching staff is very clear. And as I said, Casera relied on that in this draft. And then I think what what we've also got to put in mind is that if that if the Kellen Mond was the pick, then they've obviously had to put out a report or they've had to put out that that the fact that 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 Mills had been told well in advance. They they put that out in advance um, of this of this other rumor, and I think what the what I don't think Casario is bothered about is what you think, and and I don't think the team as a whole um, are too fussed about what you think about them and how they go about their business. You know, they told you to trust them to do the right thing, and you know, well, time will tell on that. And it's a very early stage to evaluate Casario at this stage of you know, you know, only six months in. Um, it's been a whirlwind six months, and there's still a lot to be decided and big moves to be made. Uh, but I don't think he necessarily cares about you know what you think and, and or what I think or what any of us really think from a fan or a media perspective. Um, so the fact that that was out there in advance, that would have had to be preconditioning of people's opinions of the pick um, to, to get ahead of what they thought might leak out later on. So the fact that I just don't think that's in their nature, I just don't think the care would have shown that and a number of other things 
makes me think we can dismiss that rumour. And obviously, as we said, Casario's inherited a lot here and he's got a big, big job. Um, and as I think Steph Stradley tweeted out, but who do you trust? And I think as, at the minute on this team, there's nobody. There's some good signs of some more positive and more influential and better teachers and better coaching staff on this roster. The front office, as we said a couple of weeks ago, it's not really getting the overhaul that I suspected it might. Um, so, you know, the front office and how that changes over time is, you know, a two to three evaluation of multiple moves around the margins and big, big decisions all come together to field a competitive football team. But certainly in terms of Jerome Solomon's piece in the Houston Chronicle last weekend about ticket sales being down, I think it shouldn't be a shock to the team and it shouldn't be a shock to anyone really that the fact that people are less interested in part with their hard-end cash to go and watch this team this season. You know, I talked about my kind of uh, moment of realisation when I saw the roster written down, albeit 90-man, it, but it's, it's, it's certainly not anywhere near the levels of quality that it has been in previous years. There are no stars. We've been used to stars in this football club and they're no longer there. Assuming, you know, as we said, I said to prepare yourself or I suggest you prepare yourself for a Deshaun exit shortly, but... Um, you know, I think the team will feel the pinch financially this year. And as you know, as COVID conditions exit, you've got to assume that it'll be a full capacity. It might save their blushes um, that it would that it did last year by not being able to have a full stadium, energy stadium, or on the road. But certainly, you saw, you saw you know there was a limited capacity there. But when in the early stages of last season. You've got to remember that even though we're at 25%, so it's about 12,500, 13,000 people in a 68,000-seater stadium, all those tickets weren't sold. So there was limited availability, but of that limited availability, it didn't sell out. So the team felt that last year, and that was very clear at the Minnesota game. There was a lot of tickets left for that game after the 0-3 start. They go 0-4, O'Brien's fired. So they must have realised at that point, OK, we've got a problem selling tickets. Even though we've only got 25% available, people don't want to come and see this team because it was still a big hangover from everybody from the playoffs and the Andrew Hopkins trade last off-season. You know, it was a culmination of things that just snowballed and snowballed. And is still doing that, and, and is still you know is not finished collecting dirt as it as it goes down. But I think you know the team will have to face into that reality, and I think you know billionaires like Callum, as I said, are happy to write checks, paying three GMs in a season still, paid players off, etc. Um, but the if they've released them early, Kenny still is a great example of that. Paid his full contract when you should have just got him dropped out last year. So you know, the high, highest spending cash-wise in the league last year, you know, despite only winning four wins. So they've been, you know, happy to spend money um, but in the McNairs. But I think that the big difference here is that actually when you've currently, or you've currently now seen a 12,000 waiting list disappear effectively. And I was one of those people that removed myself um, from the mailing list, something I've been on, or the waiting list I've been on for a number of years you got to remember, you know, at the turn of you know, 2011, 2012, that waiting list was, you know, a far bigger number than 12,000. There was a huge demand for tickets at that point. Obviously, the team's been less successful and that, you know, the match rab days, it felt like they were on the crest of a wave potentially and that, you know, there was a good, a good roster, you know, far, far removed talent-wise from what we've got on, 
on this roster now. But there's no stars to come and see. There's no stars to come and buy their jerseys. So the, the club will feel the revenue, not only in tickets, but also in merchandise. Because there's, there's no star quarterback, there's no star anybody. So hopefully there's not many things that Cal has taken notice of in the last few years, but certainly if there is a contraction of his bottom line, if revenues continue to decline uh, for this ball club, which they will, in merchandising sales, in, in player jerseys, because there's no, no stars to buy, to buy their names, there's no guys to support, there's no one to come and see, regardless if you don't think the team's going to be all successful at an overall level but there is, there's limited reasons to root for this team this year and you're starting to see that in ticket sales as people turn their back on the team that you'll always find you know a, a level of support in a city in a market the size of Houston is but hopefully this is maybe just one of the steps that will allow the team to, to realise uh, the wrongs of past and hopefully it will allow them to perhaps influence decisions made and learn some lessons because it's certainly from the outside perspective, doesn't feel like they've learned the lessons they should have had in the last few years. In the announcement on Friday, there was Jonathan Joseph retiring, and I think without doubt, you know, we talked about it before, but the best signing of the Rick Smith either, probably the greatest free agent signing in the history of the franchise. Him and Daniel Manning came in and changed the way this defence played on the back end. You know, it, it hadn't been a consistent unit. Um, they hadn't had the players of the calibre and the type of mentality that they needed to be competitive on defence, kind of like the guys we're looking at this year um, at that point before Jonathan Joseph was signed. Um, but he came in to this ball club and changed things and he probably got out a good time. Um, the way his career ended perhaps should have been better than being phased out gradually at the end of the 2019 season. But, you know, some great moments uh, and a, just a real game changer and, and a real quality value signing. Um, you know, and the, the, there was there was obviously big names floating about in that, that free agency draft class in 2009-2010. And, you know, those signings changed this ball club. And I think you will always... Remember Jonathan Joseph is a great player and definitely, you know, one of the few players, Dwayne Brown perhaps when he retires, Aaron Foster, and Jonathan Joseph's right up there um as next as the next in potential inductees to the Ring of Honor at NRG because his career was that good and he did a lot. And I think one thing I would say about John Jonathan Joseph was I had the pleasure to meet him uh in twenty nineteen. Um and one of the nicest, most humblest guys um you could ever meet. And I've been lucky enough to meet you know some you know reasonably big sports stars um through va- you know through various parts of my life but what a, just on a different level humble guy you would never have known he was in the position he was you never know he was a, a great competitor athlete just couldn't give you enough of his time was delighted to speak to me and a couple of guys and could not you know could not be nicer um and as he stood there uh, as his food got cold as he was leaving uh he, he stood and talked to us that long and just just a genuine all round, you know, top bloke, and I think you know there isn't many like that. I think at uh, at this uh, and and this level of sport, I think there's a reason why the guy, these guys from South Carolina, uh, all stick together because they're all sort of the salt of the earth, great human beings, and I think uh, you know they're, uh, he was a credit to this team, uh, and he's a credit to to South Carolina, and uh, he's a, he's been a you know he is one of without doubt the best. Texas defensive back in the history to date the ball club. So I wish JJ all the best in retirement. And I think there's definitely 
a coach in there because uh, the way that players flocked him uh, and, and gave him respect, I think there's definitely a, a, a coach in there. So maybe with the Texans, hopefully, still lives in Houston, living there for so long. Uh, he had the chance to go to Oakland a couple of years ago, what to stay for now, two years extended his, his stay. So hopefully you maybe see him back in some capacity because having a guy like that around your ball club is only a good thing. So as the Texans sign an additional long snapper to give John Weeks some push in the training camp as it rolls around in a couple of weeks, probably one of the few places at the specialist spots you can really push one another, kicking competitions, long snapping competitions, punting competitions, to find the best at set pieces like that. You probably can some, you probably can improve around the margins more so than you can perhaps at other spots. Uh, but thanks again for listening this week. Really enjoying just getting some stuff out to you um, as we're a bit short of time. Last week was recorded in an airport lounge. This week, a bit more time to get something out to you um, as life kind of takes over a little bit. But thanks everyone who reached out in terms of coming and doing some roundtable chats um, the next couple of weeks as we try and get through this kind of dearth of news cycle uh, before training camp rolls back around. I'll put some more stuff out on social media. We've got the guys lined up for number one got already some guys line up for number two so if there's enough interest we'll do a three and a fourth and a fifth potentially depending on timelines uh, between now and training camp but thanks again for listening please reach out if you want to come and join us if you've not already but you can check us out at podcasttextings.com on twitter on facebook and on instagram thanks again mm-hmm.